if you guys would really agree with me tonight, I really appreciate everybody agreeing with me in prayer. Because the Bible says if two agree on earth is touching anything, God will do it. And it's, uh, it's always more powerful when people are agreeing with you than just, you know, praying by yourself. So, Lord, we all come into agreement together when we pray over the word of the Lord. I ask you, Lord, tonight that they would be such a move of your precious Holy Spirit, Lord, to be released out to everybody that's hearing this, everybody that's going to hear this. And, Lord, prepare every heart and every mind. And, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to help us to get captivated, to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, that our minds will be able to, to be focused and not distracted, our hearts to be in tune. Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would anoint our eyes and our ears to be able to see and hear what your Holy Spirit is revealing to us. Because, you know, the Bible talks about he that has an eye to see and an ear to hear. And, Lord, we want to have eyes and ears of the Spirit. And, Lord, that you would come upon me and speak through me your words of life and truth. And these words will go out as living seeds of truth, like the parable of the seed and the sower. And we'll go into good, fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, Lord, and, and be watered by your Holy Spirit and take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Or that this would not just be something that's heard on a superficial level, but it's really grasped and understood deeply. And Lord, I ask you that they would be, through the, the Word of God, that they would be a washing of the water of the Word, Lord, as you cleanse your people. That it will be light of truth that shines forth that will dispel the darkness and the lies and the deception of the enemy and bring truth. Lord, it will be a mighty hammer that breaks down and shatters every stronghold and the sword of the Spirit that cuts away what needs to go and penetrates. And Lord, help us even now just to get really locked in by your precious Holy Spirit that that we will be um, focused and we'll be able to really receive because it it takes the Holy Spirit to help us. We can't grasp the deep things in the flesh we need that we need to depend on the holy spirit so lord i thank you for it and we agree together that we bind the enemy that would try to steal the seed or hinder the word in the name of jesus we bind you now we break his power and we say that the enemy will not steal any seed the enemy will not hinder and lord let the winds of your spirit carry this everywhere it's supposed to go and let your holy angels watch over it to make sure it gets where it's supposed to go and accomplishes that which it's supposed to do because the bible says the word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which the Lord has sent it forth to do. So we thank you for it. We believe together, and we bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you for agreeing with me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, I'm going to do part three. This is kind of dovetailing off of what we talked about last week. And um, if, you, if you didn't hear that, you need to go back and hear it because I dealt with iniquity. And that is very different than probably what a lot of people have ever studied it. But anyway, tonight I'm going to continue along those lines. I'm going to deal some with Satan, and I'm going to deal with pride, and then I'm going to deal, uh, you know, with humility as well, and and Jesus' example with humility. But this goes back also to Saul and David, It's like I talked about last week. And so, Matthew 23, verse 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So there's a principle that is set in motion in the Bible. There's a principle. Just like, for example, the law of gravity. As much as somebody wants to rebel against the law of gravity, they don't want to believe in that law. They want to buck that thing. And they're going to go up on top of a building and they're going to step out a window. They're going to find out that the law of gravity is still true. Whether they believe it or not. Whether they respect it or not. 
And in the same way, this is something that's set in motion. That whoever will exalt himself will be brought down. But whoever will humble himself will be exalted. All right. So in the Bible, we can pray that God the Holy Spirit will help us to walk in humility, which I'll get into that some as we go. But really, the Bible says you humble yourself. And I'm going to explain that tonight. I believe this will be very liberating for people and will help people. 1 Peter 5, 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's a really powerful scripture. So when we're together, the Bible says, clothe yourself with humility. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And let me tell you something about humility. We need God's grace to stand. I mean, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I, hopefully I'll get into a lot of this as I go, but this is the truth. And if you don't believe this is the truth, that God can help you believe this, but if God lifts his hand of grace off of you, you will fall into sin before the day's over. Because it is only by his grace that we stand. That's it. And the way that we have grace is by walking in humility. And the Holy Spirit through us will help us. See, a lot of times people are trying to do things in their own flesh. We need to have discipline. We need to do the right things. And we need to resist temptation. I understand that. But you have to understand that it's the Holy Spirit through us that helps us and empowers us and gives us the grace to be able to do it in the first place. It's like renewing your mind. The Bible says you renew your mind, and that's true. I need to dismiss wrong thoughts, and I need to think on the good. But it's really by the grace of the Holy Spirit helping me to do that. To break old habits, things that need to change. Yes, there is some discipline, but God the Holy Spirit does it. And we need His grace. And the way that we have His grace is by what I talked about last week. We're not going to depend on human strength and human wisdom. We are going to depend on the Holy Spirit. We will humble ourselves and say, Lord, as much as we want to understand something, as much as we want to be able to do it in our flesh, we know that we never really can. So we humble ourselves before you and say, Lord, help us. That by your Holy Spirit in us, he will give us strength to overcome. The Holy Spirit will help you understand things that you just cannot understand with your natural mind. He will help you overcome sin. He will teach you the Bible. He'll help you be strong. He will empower you. Now, let me say this is before I go on. Matthew 24, verse 19. If you want to jot these down or whatever if you're taking notes. But Matthew 24, 19 the Bible says, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. It's talking about the end times. You know, I understand what that's saying in context. Believe me, I do. I've studied all that. I understand it's talking about in the last days. I understand it's talking about the time of Israel having to flee and all that. I get that. But I think that there's a metaphor here. And what I mean by that is this. Woe to those churches that are going to endure the last days with a bunch of nursing babes. Spiritual babies are still caught up in the flesh. They're full of selfishness. It's all about me. Full of pride. Full of envy. There's a lot of fighting that goes on in those type of churches. 
a bunch of spiritual babes. And I believe the latter days will be very difficult for those type of churches. In Matthew 24, 28, the Bible says, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And I understand that's talking about the latter days. And I understand about things like the Gog and Magog War. I get all of that in context. But I believe, again, there's a metaphor that where there's dead churches, there the demonic will gather. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And the demonic will kind of feed on the dead bodies. We need in these latter days to be on fire for God. We need to, be, we need to grow up into maturity and become what God's called us to be. And a church that is mature is a church that will be unified, that will be under authority. They're not going to be prideful. They're not going to be rebellious. There's not going to be a lot of fighting. There's not going to be all this selfishness. But it's a unified front. And a church like that that's unified and they're under authority and, and they're living right and, and they're on fire for God, they're going to be causing the vultures to run in fear, not the vultures gathering to feed on them. All right, so let me touch on iniquity before I go on. I talked about sin, transgression, and iniquity last week. This is extremely important, and I believe that this has a lot to do with your level of freedom. This has been an extremely important issue. You know, I think that God has helped me to understand these things because of the type of ministry of ministering to people that's come out of things, like, for example, my wife's testimony. But there's something, okay, sin is one thing, transgression is another, and iniquity is another. Sin means missing the mark. Okay, everybody has various sins that, you know, we're not perfect, we live in a fallen world, we have a fallen nature. The Bible says in 1 John, if we say without sin, we just deceive ourselves. And But as we, as we you know, miss the mark in life that God is faithful and just, that we confess our sin to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is, this is not deliberate. This is just our, our flaws, okay? But transgression is different. Transgression is translated rebellion against God. Rebellion. This is somebody that, that just straight out knows something is wrong, they premeditate it, and then they go do it anyway. That's rebellion. And that is serious. When you're dealing with sin, the Bible uses the words like washing away. But when you're dealing with transgression, the Bible uses the words blotting out. It's interesting. It's a different word. But God is, Jesus paid for it though. He paid that, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions. But what I'm trying to show you is, is that it's a more serious thing. And then iniquity is altogether different. Iniquity means bent, crooked, or perverse. And what iniquity is, it is something within people that causes them to struggle with sin. And they don't even know why. It's very much generational. It's like roots that that grow down into a person. And it causes them to be in bondage for example sin is one thing but it's another thing to be in bondage to sin the power of sin to where somebody keeps having a repeated struggle with something that's stubborn and they don't know why that's iniquity it's different and you've got to be delivered from iniquity you've got to be set free from it it's not just a matter of saying lord forgive me but it's a matter of god taking that out of you there's a difference 
And I dealt with it last week in depth, and I gave several things to pray about, so that's on last week's notes, okay? But I'm going to move on now. But you can see patterns. This is like building from last week. This is different than what I talked about. But you can see patterns in families. This travels down family lines. Um, Iniquity can really affect people deeply. Um, For example, stubborn lust. You can see it in a family, especially where there's Freemasonry. But there's stubborn lust. And this is where somebody keeps repeatedly struggling in that area and they don't know why. It's because there's an iniquity drive in them. And Jesus, the Bible says, was bruised for your iniquity. If you're pierced, you bleed outwardly. But if you're bruised, you bleed inwardly. And so a bruise is where the Lord is paying for that iniquity to be pulled out of you and you delivered from it. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's a removal, okay? And so you see stubborn lust. You see things in family lines like Jezebel and Ahab tendencies. People have a tendency to be fearful and to be controlling. They want to be in control. Uh, A tendency in homes to be out of order. You also see tendencies toward the occult where you have family um, that has been involved in the occult. You'll see in their descendants a lot of times that they'll have an unhealthy fascination or something trying to draw them toward the occult. And they don't know why, but there's something in them that is, is trying to pull them. A tendency to hold grudges, to be bitter. Difficulty forgiving. Also, a love of money is another one, materialistic. They, they may be given the opportunity to be freed up from, from work, you know, uh, but yet it just seems like they keep wanting to work more hours and make more money. There's something in them that's driving them for more, more money. And they don't understand, but Jesus warned about that iniquity drive when he said that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches will choke the fruitfulness out. They get so busy with making money that they can't do anything for God. Their fruitfulness is totally choked out. But it's an inner drive in them to make more money. Also, a tendency towards substances. You'll see in a family many times, you wonder how in the world does this keep cycling? Why is there so much alcohol? Why is there so much of a tendency toward drugs? But there's an iniquity there toward bondage toward addiction this iniquity is actually what the curses stick to does that make sense and once somebody really confesses that iniquity and the lord takes it out of them then those curses are broke you can break them and drive that out but it's like if until you deal with the iniquity you're not letting the axe be laid to the root And I talked last week about different things, a list of of different things that can be iniquity, like pride and and rebellion and and different areas of sexual immorality and idolatry, etc. But these these are serious. And I really encourage you, River of Life, to to take this serious because I feel the Holy Spirit right now. There's like a grace and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And I encourage you to take these notes home 
and, and really to pray over this all the way through until you feel that you've really prayed about it adequately. And believe God. It's important that when we pray, we believe. God wants this stuff out of people's lives more than they want it out. You understand that? He wants it out so bad that look at what Jesus went through so you could have it removed. Okay, Jesus paid a horrible price. God wants us out. So as you confess this before him, you need to believe that he is cleansing you from all unrighteousness. You need to speak that out. Lord, I thank you. See, faith is released out of your mouth. You believe in the heart, but you confess with your mouth. And so as you pray these things, it's important that you vocalize. Lord, I thank you. I believe I receive this, that this iniquity is washed out of me and my family. And let me say, don't leave it for your kids and your grandkids to have to fight this battle. You deal with it in your generation. You let the axe be laid to the root. Is there things in your family that's occult, Freemasonry? Are there areas of sexual immorality? Do you see patterns of, of divorce and multiple marriages? Do you see patterns of financial poverty? Do you see health issues and things that seem to be stubborn and very generational? That's a sign of a curse. But the reason the curse is there is because there's iniquity. Let God purge, purge your blood. Purge your bloodline. Cleanse you. And he'll separate you from all that stuff. Whew. All right. So let me move on from that because I'm going to deal with the birthplace of iniquity here in a moment. So before I do, I mentioned in the garden, see, Eve was deceived, as I mentioned last week. Eve was tricked. And so Eve, the Bible says, sinned. She missed the mark. But Adam knew what he was doing. And the Bible says that Adam transgressed. There's a difference. I want you to notice those two words because they're different. Eve sinned. Adam transgressed. Eve was tricked. Adam knew what he was doing. He rebelled. And then you also see iniquity involved in this because of Lucifer. He was in the garden. He entered the serpent. And the Bible talks about Satan. It says that iniquity was found in him. Which I'm going to deal with that tonight here in a moment. So even in the garden at the very beginning, you see sin with Eve, transgression with Adam, in iniquity with the snake. And when Adam used his, his authority, his kingly authority got invested in him, and he obeyed the devil, and ate of the fruit and disobeyed God, you become a slave to the one you obey. He basically came under that satanic rulership and brought the human race under it. But that iniquity began to find its way now into the human race. And it's really weird because I've seen how iniquity can affect people. All right, I'll give you an example. Iniquity somehow can pass from person to person. Not just down family lines, but in other areas. And I'll give you a story. There was a young lady that got saved um, through my ministry, if you will. But this was back when I first got saved. I was basically going to a group that we would just do street evangelism. I mean, it was, I was probably 19 years old. Give me an example. And so she happened to get saved. And I brought her to this church, and, and she really gave her life to the Lord and, and started really growing spiritually. And I was instrumental in some of the discipleship and things going on. Later, she got married um, to a, a Christian man, and unfortunately, 
in this situation, he was unfaithful sexually, and it was a sad thing. But her and her son, I, I still, you know, they contacted me, and I still help them get to the church uh, near them, and, and I was still instrumental in helping seeing her through all this really dark time in her life. And later on, this, I, I knew this person for like 10 years. This person, I, I really um, was, you know, there was a, a strong impact I had in their life. And I'm saying all this for a reason. And this, we had a, you know, the relationship was, was fine. I mean, she had no problem. There was no fights. We had nothing negative. Well, here's what happened. So she ends up dating a guy, a Christian guy. But him and his family were the type of people that were like church hoppers and would run down preachers and they, they, they were the type that were rebellious and caused church problems, those type of people. And I didn't really know this about him. I didn't really know him. And she ended up getting married to this guy. And it was really weird because after she got married to him, she had a total personality change. And pretty soon, she turned on me. And the very thing that this, her husband now was that him and his family were like, she started taking on that iniquity and started becoming like that. Now she's getting lifted up with pride and getting rebellious, and now she's starting to, to oppose me. And so much so that she was working at a place where I had just started a, a ministry here in Dallas. I mean, just started it. It was just simply like a cell group, and, and we, we, you know, I don't know how many we had coming at the time, 20, 30, something. And it was just like in an apartment. We were going out witnessing, and, and anyway, she was familiar with this, but she was working with two instrumental people that were involved at that time. We were using their apartment. We, they were really involved, and her and her husband were both working at this place. And so they were now determined that they were going to discredit me to them and do whatever they could to get them to leave and, and split things up. And, and they just really turned completely against me. And I just cried out to God and said, Lord, you have to deal with this. I, I don't know what else to do at this point, you know. And God ended up judging them. It was sad. But what happened was both of them needed this job, but they were, they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing at the job and in the same day, both of them got fired. And that disconnected them from the people that they were doing everything they could to turn them against me. But it was weird to me that I could have had an established, long-term relationship with somebody that was, that was totally fine. There was never a problem. All of a sudden, they get married to somebody, and the nature of that iniquity somehow got into them, and they turned on me that quickly and were bent on destroying the ministry. Isn't that weird? But that's iniquity. And I'm going to show you that. I believe this story will help you understand where I'm coming from here in a moment as I talk about the devil. All right, so humility is not a feeling. Humility is basically like a decision. Just like forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a feeling. When you're betrayed and you're really hurt by somebody, forgiveness is not a feeling. You're not going to feel like forgiving them. You're not going to feel the warm and fuzzies for them. You're not going to feel anything. But based on an act of your will, you make a decision 
that you are going to forgive that person. And even though your flesh does not want to forgive them, you're still going to forgive them and you're still going to bless them and you're still going to pray for them and you're going to humble yourself and do what the Bible says do. It's an act of your will. But over time, because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, God will heal your heart. God will give you a love for them. And pretty soon your feelings will start lining up with the decision of your will. Does that make sense? But that takes time. Humility is, is almost exactly the same. Humility is not a feeling. It is an act of your will. It is a decision to humble yourself. And once people really realize that we are utterly dependent on Him, once people really realize the truth about themselves, that the, what the Apostle Paul said, this is totally true, there is nothing good within me except Christ. And when people really understand that, it's not that hard to humble yourself. The problem is, is people's attitude. And I'm going to show you that here in a moment. But humility has everything to do with somebody's attitude. The attitude of their mind, the attitude of their heart. Humility is not insecurity. It is not living intimidated or being weak or being defeated or being a shy person. It's not dressing like you're poor. It's not acting humble. Humility is really within. It's internal. It's not acting like you're humble. That's just putting on a show. Some people act like they're humble, but they're not. And, and people can see right through that. But humility is a recognition that anything good in your life is from God. Humility is being teachable. Everybody say teachable. A teachable person is not somebody that thinks they already know everything. A teachable person is humble and says, you know what, I don't know everything and you, I can learn something today. See, pride is already, they think they already know everything. A humble person will be quick to repent. They'll be quick to ask forgiveness. A humble person is giving God all the glory and taking none for yourself. That's a humble person. If you're good at something, see, a lot of people get prideful about different things. Maybe they have a family heritage they could be proud of. Maybe they're in politics. Maybe they, they're wealthy financially. Maybe they have athletic prowess. Maybe they're famous. Maybe they have a high IQ. You know, maybe they're doing really well in business. Whatever it is, they can take a lot of pride in that. But a humble person will realize that it's only by God's grace that they're in the first place. And they give God all the glory. And, and a prideful person will depend on their own intellect and their own strength. But a humble person will really lean on the Lord. And say, no matter how hard I try, I'll never be able to do what God the Holy Spirit can do. And you depend on Him. It seems to me like the, the hardest thing for people to be humble about is knowledge. Out of all of that, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. That people learn and they, they grow in their, their education and all that. And they really get prideful about that. And pride leads to great deception and great disillusionment. 
I've seen people get lifted up with pride and start rebelling. And literally, this is not an exaggeration, I have seen people that their perception of reality is so distorted that they can't even remember things that have happened in the past correctly. It's totally distorted. They can't even, their perception of me, their perception of others is totally distorted. It's skewed because they got lifted up with pride. And great deception comes with that, great disillusionment. But a humble person will boast on their weakness and not depend on their wisdom or strength. I remember after a great revival, a pastor saw at his church for an extended period of time. I remember hearing him tell about what happened. And, and he, he was so humble. He was talking about how it had nothing to do with him and, and how spiritually God was trying to, to do a work in him. And, and he just actually stumbled into a lot of things. And he was boasting on his weaknesses. And he was making sure that everybody understood that this had nothing to do with him. That's humble. Humility is an attitude of total dependence on God. And an understanding, as I've already said, it is only by His grace that we stand. So let me kind of start moving now toward a close. I want to talk about the birthplace of iniquity. The first sin recorded in the Bible is not the Garden of Eden. Did y'all know that? The first sin recorded in the Bible took place in heaven. With Lucifer's rebellion. I think you're going to see some things as I go you've never seen before. But see, Lucifer was created in the highest place. He was created in heaven. Follow this line of thinking for a moment. He was created in the highest place. He was the highest order of God's creation of that time. He was very beautiful. He was very powerful. And he got lifted up with pride. And because of his pride, the law, those that exalt themselves will be humbled. The law came into effect and God threw him all the way down to the dirt. And Jesus said, I saw him fall to the earth like lightning. He went from the highest place to the lowest. So God says, the next time I create something, he's now going to create mankind. And he's going to make mankind in the image and likeness of himself. And he doesn't want man to fall into pride. And so it's quite interesting. God now comes all the way down to the dirt and forms man out of the dirt, the lowest place. But yet man still sinned as Lucifer began to mess with him and tempted him. So let me read through this real quick. Um, Ezekiel 28, 1 through 10 speaks of the prince, this is important to understand, it speaks of the prince of Tyre, which is actually the physical king. And the principality behind his throne. Does that make sense? So the prince of Tyre here is actually the presiding king. And then the principality, the spiritual kingdom that was behind his throne. Now when Ezekiel starts getting into verses 11 through 19, he's no longer talking about secular Tyre. Now he's talking about Lucifer. And you'll see it. There's no way that he's not. And many times you see this in Scripture, I'll show you in Isaiah, where the prophets are prophesying about a secular kingdom and things, but all of a sudden in that, they get into something that's so deep and so profound that it has multiple layers of meaning, okay? So Ezekiel 28, verse 11, this is now no longer dealing with the secular king. 
He said, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up your lamentation over the king of Tyre, not the prince, the king. This is now dealing with Lucifer. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Now we know he's talking about Lucifer because nobody in Tyre at that time was wandering around the Garden of Eden. Okay, The Garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, barrel, onyx, and jasper. Last one. He, he lists nine. It's important you understand he lists nine. How many were on the priest Aaron's priesthood? Twelve. So you go from nine to twelve, which I'll explain in a moment. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and your sockets. You know, it's interesting because another translation talks about Lucifer having tabrets and pipes within him. Did you know, without me getting too much into this, I don't want to rabbit trail too much, but it said here in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub that covers. Let me do a quick rabbit trail if you want to look this way. You remember in the Ark of the Covenant, it represented the throne of God, but what was on each side of the Ark? The two cherubim, remember? And when Ezekiel saw the floating, the floating throne of God, he saw a wheel within a wheel, it seems like that the cherubim, there was four living creatures, it seemed like that somehow they would possibly interlock their arms or something and they would create like a throne for God, like a portable throne. Just like the ark had staves and it was portable. Just bear with me. And Lucifer was a part of that. Lucifer was not a seraphim. He was not an angel like Michael the archangel. He was a cherubim. And could it be, I'm just speculating, but the Bible calls him the anointed cherub that covered. And tabrets and pipes. Tabrets have to do with rhythm, like drums. Rhythms and beats. Pipes have to do with melody. Like if you were to play on a keyboard the C chord, people that aren't musicians, it's a C, E, and a G. It's three different notes that make up a full chord. And it's like those pipes were within him. He had rhythms and melodies somehow in him. Could it be that he was the fifth cherub, the fifth living creature at one time? And just as the other four were around the throne of God, connected to that, maybe even making it up, that he maybe stood behind and was like a high back chair that stood up over where God was, an anointed cherub that covered and that he would lead worship to God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Look how close he was to God. That may not be an absolute perfect picture, but I do believe it was something like that. And it says in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub that covered. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now I want you to notice a mountain. It seems like in heaven... You know, first off, mountains speak of governments in the Bible. And so this is God's government. But in heaven, there's some kind of a mountain, and God's at the top of it. His throne is there. He said, you were on the mountain of God. You walked among the stones of fire. This is right there around God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness. And that word there is iniquity. Till iniquity was found in you. 
By the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. Now, here's the important thing that a lot of people don't know. The word in Hebrew for trade, this is what it, re- this is what it means. You ready? To go to and fro. It paints a picture that Lucifer somehow was up there maybe leading worship and he realized how beautiful he was and he began to covet the throne for himself. And now he begins to go to and fro. Please follow me because this is very important with the point I'm trying to make. He begins to go to and fro and now he's talking to other angels. Malicious gossip. A talebearer. He's going up to other angels and saying, you know, I don't think God is everything that he's claiming to be. If I was in the throne, I would recognize you for greater than what he recognizes you. I think that he doesn't see your potential. And he was going to and fro and he was talking these different angels, malicious gossip, a slanderer. He was slandering God, a talebearer. This came out of pride. And through that malicious gossip, he circulated among the angels. The Bible shows us that one-third of the angels got lifted up in a rebellion against God Almighty, and they were cast to the earth. And God let it go on. God allowed it to sift and see who was going to be loyal and who wasn't. Now, this is very interesting to me because you see, if you're a pastor... And I've talked to many other pastors. You see the nature of Lucifer trying to slither into churches. Hello? You see different individuals down through the years start getting lifted up with pride. And they begin to be a malicious gossip. And they begin to go through and begin to say things about the pastor, about the pastor's wife, about the church. And they're trying to turn people's hearts. And pretty soon, if they can, they'll lead a rebellion against the pastor. And then it creates a split just exactly like what happened in heaven. It's literally the nature of Lucifer. Pride that leads to rebellion. See, a lot of people look at rebellion and think that that's the root. The reason why there was rebellion, because it started with pride which was the iniquity within him. you hear what I'm saying? Where there's an iniquity within people of pride, it will inevitably begin to cause them to rebel against authority. Unless they deal with it. He said, you were filled with violence, you sinned, therefore I cast you as, a, as profane from the mountain of God. In other words, you were once clean, now you're dirty, and I'm throwing you out. You've been defiled, and I'm casting you down. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up with pride because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of splendor. So in other words, his wisdom got corrupted because now he's using his mind to think about all these negative things to say about God to the angels. I cast you down to the ground. I put you before kings and they may see you. 
by the multitude of your iniquities and unrighteousness of your trade. What was the trade? Going around maliciously gossiping. By the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned my sanctuary. In other words, you made dirty my holy habitation. You defiled it. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you. I've turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and will cease to be forever. You seeing something maybe you've never seen before? The nature of Lucifer. I've seen, I'm sharing all this for a reason because as we're going deeper into things of God, don't think that just because you have God's presence in your life and because God's touching you, that that makes you exempt. Lucifer was that close to God. And he walked among the fiery stones, yet he fell. We better make sure that we stay humble before the Lord our God. And say, Lord, search me. Like I talked about last week in that scripture about David. Lord, search me. Show me if there's any hidden iniquity in me. A lot of times we don't see these things. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can know it? God. If you humble yourself and say, God, I don't even know my own heart. I don't even really fully realize that there's iniquity, but you do. Lord, show me so I can repent. Now that type of prayer gets results. Now let me read this last one and we're going to start closing this out. Isaiah 14 verse 4. So Isaiah is again, he's prophesying about Babylon and all of a sudden it shifts and he starts exposing Satan's fall. Okay, it's really interesting to watch. That you take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the people with fury and unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger and unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth in the shouts of joy. Even um, cypress trees rejoice over you and cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter has come against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even as you've been made weak as we, you have been brought, you have become like us. So in other words, now all of a sudden it's shifting from the pride of natural Babylon. Now it's shifting to Lucifer. You see what I'm saying? Here it is. It says, your pomp and the music of your harps has been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed. Um, Your worms are your covering. How you have fallen, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. See, Lucifer means the bright one, the shining one, the light bringer, the morning star. You want to know something interesting? There was a preacher that was saying that he was stationed one time in the desert. He was in the military. And he was in the desert of Africa. And he said that early in the morning, it was really weird because he had read this scripture. But he said early in the morning when it was really dark, it was not a full moon or anything, but it was really dark. He said that it would look like the sun was rising because there was a star that would come up. And it was so dark already 
that that star looked like it was the dawn starting to come. But then shortly after that, the sun would emerge and he would realize it was like a false dawn. Now, it doesn't take a lot to start seeing a parallel here. Because there's one day going to be an antichrist that's going to be like a false light. And, but he's going to be preceded by the true son of God, the Christ. In the same way, Lucifer was like a morning star, but he's eclipsed by Jesus, the son of God. All right. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. You've been cut down to the earth, you who weaken the nations. But you said in your heart, look at this. Look, look at the arrogance right here. The pride within his heart. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. What is this seated throne in the recesses of the north? What is this? This is the very throne of God Almighty. He's saying, I will set my throne above the other stars, meaning his peers, other angels. I will be above all of my peers. I'm better than all of you. And not only that, I will sit in God's throne myself. That's what he's saying. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They'll ponder of you, saying, Is this the man? Is this the guy that made the earth tremble? Shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? Who did not allow prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations will lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you've been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain, who, who you pierce with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. So in other words, the Lord is saying, one day, we're all going to look at Satan and go, this little guy shook the, the nations? God's going to bring him down to such a low place. So I need to start closing this out now really good. But look, I wanted to share this with you because this is so important that we make sure that we deal with iniquity within us. And the greatest iniquity root that we see in the Bible is that of pride. And if you ask God to take it out, He will. But if we don't deal with these things within us, and we need to be humble before God and be honest with ourselves, is there things about us that we see in our family that's not good, but we see those traits in us? Be honest with yourself. Do you see pridefulness? Do you see religious? Do you see having a gossiping mouth? Do you see lustful things? Uh, whatever it is. And we need to say, Lord, we humble ourselves down before you. Purge this iniquity out of me. I don't want to end up falling into something. All right. Psalm 105.15, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So one of the things David had to learn during his time, Saul was thrust upward, remember? And Saul depended on his own human strength. Saul was thrust upward. He was the guy everybody would pick. This is last week's sermon. David was the guy nobody would pick. And he really trust, he depended on God. But David had to go through a period of time where Saul was trying to kill him. As much as somebody, you may feel that you've been wronged in life, let me ask you, has there been an authority figure that has actually tried to hunt you down and kill you? Okay, if not, can anybody raise their hand and say, I've had that? Okay, if not, then David had it worse than you, all right? 
whatever people feel like that they've been through in life, David had to go through this process because God was trying to help him respect authority. David did for authority what Abraham did for faith. David became the throne of which God said, from your throne, I will have a son sent on it forever. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment. He's called the son of David. His throne will endure forever. But before God can entrust David with that type of authority, God had to help him understand authority. Does this make sense? (coughs) So David was put in a situation where he had every opportunity to kill Saul. Do you remember these stories where he really could have killed Saul? He, he could have taken matters in his own hand. But David, God had done such a work in David that David said, God, I just trust you. I'm not going to touch your anointed one. You're going to have to deal with that. And, and, and he understood being under authority. Jesus, when he came, he said, I do not come on my own. I do what I see my father doing. I speak what I hear my father speaking. I do not act on my own. I am under authority. Amen? When the centurion came to Jesus, he said, Look, Jesus, I understand authority. There's men under me that I tell them what to do, but also I'm under authority. I understand authority. And Jesus said, I haven't seen such great faith. See, we've got to learn to be under authority and be told no when we want it to be the other. You know, we want to be under authority. There's protection. I can't rabbit trail on this subject, but it's a big deal. And when people get lifted up with pride and they start rebelling against authority, they don't realize what they're doing. They are coming out from under any type of protection they used to have, and they are open game for the enemy to attack them. So let me close out with Jesus here. How many knows Jesus is our example? All right, so humility has everything to do with an attitude. Let me give you another story about this. There was one time, and I'm sharing this to help you, There was one time that I had to talk to a young lady. And I went to her and her husband in private. And they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. And I just simply tried to talk to them about it. And her response to me was, I'm the pastor. Her response was these exact words. You're being stupid and it's none of your business. Now how many knows that doesn't take a genius to see that that is prideful and rebellious. And so I wasn't being stupid because it went against the Bible, what they were doing, number one. And number two, it was my business because they were doing it in front of everybody. And you can't have leaders doing stuff like that in front of everybody. And so it's an attitude. What I'm trying to get at is pride and humility have a lot to do with attitude. Your attitude toward authority. Her attitude was prideful and rebellious. But Jesus' attitude was humble. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although although he existed in the form of God, I mean, no, Jesus was in the highest place in heaven. Existing in the form of God did did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to God. 
See, that's under authority. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which was very shameful. It was humiliating. It was where the lowest criminal... You understand, some people went to prison, prison, some people were flogged, other people were fined. Being crucified was the worst possible sentence. That's why it says in the Bible, even the death of the cross. That he was willing to even go the most shameful, embarrassing, worst death that could be done to a person. For this reason also, now look. Those that humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus humbled himself all the way down to the lowest possible place of being somebody that was hung naked on a cross, full of shame, and he went all the way down to that place. So what happened? Those that humble themselves will be exalted. So God exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So where is Jesus now? At the right hand of the Father. Just like Lucifer was part of the throne and was cast all the way down to the dirt, Jesus humbled himself all the way down to the dirt. And God exalted him all the way up to the right hand. You see? Those that humble themselves will be exalted, but those that exalt themselves will be brought down. Satan said, I will ascend, I'll be God. But he was cast down to the lowest depths. Jesus, look at this, let me read this over. Seven steps, Jesus humbled himself, he emptied himself. Laid aside his divinity. You know what that is for me and you? That's saying, God, I really do realize that there really is nothing good within me but you. I understand that. Given to my own devices, I would get myself in trouble. The only thing really good in me is you. You empty yourself completely before God. Number two, he took on the form of a servant. You know what that is? Just like water. If you pour water down, it's going to move. Water is going to find the lowest place and sit there. We need to be like water. We need to be humble servants. You know, Jesus gave the example about a banquet. He said, let me give you some advice. If there's a table set, don't go sit in the important seat. Because somebody may come in and tell you, hey, there's somebody more important than you here. And you're going to be embarrassed in front of everybody when you have to be demoted. But he said, when you come in, sit at the lowest chair. And then whenever somebody says, hey, you need to move up, that you're being promoted. Number three, made in the likeness of men. He didn't want to be, he didn't come to be above He came in the likeness of man. What did Satan say? I'm going to set my throne above my peers, above the other stars. I'm better than you all. Jesus said, no, I've come as the son of man, a servant, in the likeness of men. Number four, found in the appearance of a man. He didn't appear like an angel. He appeared like a man. Number five, he humbled himself. He avoided, how many knows Jesus avoided public recognition? Jesus would heal somebody and then say, hey, don't go tell anybody. And of course, they went right out and told everybody. Jesus would cast out a demon and say, shh, just keep this between us. And they would go out and they'd go tell everybody. Jesus, they tried to make Jesus king. And Jesus would slip through the crowds. What did you, do you see what I'm saying? He kept humbling himself. He didn't want to be exalted by man. If he was going to be exalted, he wanted God to do it. 
He kept humbling himself down. Number six, he endured the death as all men do, faithful to the end. But number seven, willing to die the most humiliating death of the cross. Did you know that when God raised Jesus from the dead, that there were two human courts that had found Jesus guilty? There was the Jewish court of Sanhedrin that said, you're guilty of blasphemy and you deserve death. And then there was the Roman court under Pilate which he washed his hands and said, look, I don't see anything wrong with this guy, but whatever. And he gave him over to death, though. Both courts delivered Jesus over to death. Both courts found him guilty to be, you know, killed. But it was interesting that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was saying that I cancel both those decrees. This is my righteous son, and death cannot hold him. No court on the earth is going to have the final say. I have the final say. And God raised him up and exalted him. All right. Here's what I want to do. Um, How many of y'all got something out tonight? Maybe something you haven't thought about. Let me just tell you. Please hear me in this. I know I've already said this. I said it last week and I've already said it in this sermon. But please pray through this iniquity. Because I feel the Holy Spirit telling me as a pastor to tell you that God wants you totally free. He doesn't want anything in you that the devil can exploit down the road. He wants all that perched out so there's not going to be these tendencies. You know, Jesus, whenever he said the prince of this world is coming, but Jesus said he has nothing in me. Is you know, Jesus paid such a dear price at the cross to where all that iniquity can be removed out of us to where when Satan shows up, it's like I don't have anything inside of them that I can put a hook in them and I can pull them into this sin over here. It's gone. They ask God to forgive them and take it out of them. It's not there anymore. I can't pull them into lust. I can't pull them into rebellion. I can't get them lifted up with pride anymore. I can't get any hook in them anymore because they laid hold of the cross and Jesus purified them. There's nothing in them anymore. I want the Lord to be able to say that about me. How about you?